Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself, learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you've found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. So it's been a minute as life, work, and a global pandemic have stemmed the flow of inspiration coming from yours truly and the Relevate Podcast. Thankfully, I'm back with a number of great conversations designed to inspire and enlighten you. And Lord knows we all need more of that these days. So I've made it my life's work to try and figure out why is it that some people succeed and other people don't? And that's the premise of it. That is my new friend, Chris Widener, a motivational speaker and former pastor who is here to kickstart 2021 with us with some advice on overcoming challenges, choosing to be successful, and other words of encouragement. I know you'll enjoy getting to know Chris as much as I did. Chris Widener, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, well, so awesome to have a real chat with you. I am just so inspired by you and your motivational talks. And I think you will agree that we all need a little more motivation these days. And let's just kind of dig into your life story, kind of the encouragement you give to people, mostly on a big stage, but... COVID took that away temporarily, so super excited to be here with you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Happy to talk about uh, things that I've learned. You know, that's one of the great things about life. We all learn things, and then we pass it along to others so that they don't have to learn those things the way we learned them. Exactly, exactly. Okay, well, let's just start off. uh, Help us understand just a little bit about where you're from and how we kind of got here to today. Yeah, I'll give you sort of a two-minute version of the trajectory of how we ended up here. Um, I was born into a pretty affluent family in Seattle. Mm -hmm. My dad in 1969 made $90,000. He was the fifth partner at an architecture firm called NBB&J, which I think just did the Google campus. Uh, They're now one of the largest. uh, At the time, he had about 150 architects. He was the CFO. Now they're at, I think, 5,000 architects all around the world. Name a major city. That's where they're at. Uh, He was 40 years old. He was born in 1929. In 1970, Uh, May 1st, he woke up with flu-like symptoms. Mm. November 18th, he passed away. And even though he was making $90,000 worth of, uh, you know, salary, he only had $30,000 worth of life insurance. And that quickly went, you know, when you had to pay burial costs and all that. Mm. And my mom had to sell our house. We were living in the most prestigious house in, in one of the most prestigious country clubs in the Seattle area, Sandpoint Country Club, big, beautiful home. It recently sold for almost $3 million. My mom had to sell the house because she couldn't afford the $400 a month mortgage payment. 
So uh, that began a downward spiral. My mom hadn't worked outside the home for a long time. So she went into real estate and she started flipping houses long before it was popular on HGTV. My mom was flipping houses. This is how I ended up living in 28 homes and went to 11 different schools. Um, I don't know why my mother didn't flip houses in the same school district. That would have been fun. Then I could have just stayed in the same school district. But I began to really fall apart as a kid. I began to get angry and troubled. I spent most Wednesday afternoons at uh, a psychologist's office. His name was Dr. Stanley Mensch. And he was at the Behavioral Sciences Clinic in uh, in um, the Children's Hospital, Orthopedic Hospital in Seattle. Later on, when I was an adult and had some success in my career, I was going to visit someone at that hospital. And I thought, I wonder if he still works here. I went up there. He did still work there, but he wasn't in. So I left my business card and said, just tell him I turned out all right. Because I can't imagine this guy thought I was going to turn out all right. I ended up getting involved in drugs. By the time I was in sixth grade, I was smoking pot every day. Uh, eighth grade, I started smoking opium. Made my money growing up scalping tickets outside the Seattle Mariners and Seattle Seahawks games. Uh, I bet the ponies at Long Acres Horse Track. I made a lot of money betting horses, but you know, that was the sixth and seventh and eighth grade. So you can see that I was not going in the right direction. (laughs) And then uh, summer before my senior year of high school, I thought, man, I better figure this out because I'm going in the wrong direction. Got a few things figured out, had some mentors come into my life eked my way out of high school. I was 149th out of 172 kids in my high school. When we came back for our 10th reunion, our high school reunion, you know, we ate dinner and then after dinner, the MC got up and said, okay, it's time for us to vote for the most changed male and the most changed female. But we all know who the most changed male is. It's Chris. So we're not even going to vote. Let's vote for the Like they did not even take a vote for most changed male because I had been such a terror in school and had, you know, had a radical transformation in my life. And and uh, began a, a mm. publishing company in the 90s called mm. uh, American Community Business Network. That transformed. So what do you credit the transformation to? Did God get a hold of your heart or what yep, happened? That's exactly what happened. So I was spending uh, the night with my biggest pot smoking buddy. It was a Saturday night and Sunday morning, his mother walked in, throw open the door. She says, get up. We're going to Sunday school. Now you have to understand I had no idea what Sunday school was like literally nothing, no idea. And so I was like, what's Sunday school? And so I had gone to church twice in my entire life. Both of them were Christmas Eve services because my mother had become sort of nostalgic. And so one was at a um, Dutch reformed church and one was at a Catholic church. So I went to Sunday school and uh, long story short, there was a good old boy youth minister from Helena, Montana. And he had two things I really needed. Number one, he had size 11 cowboy boots, which I really needed uh, because I had never had a real male role model that kicked me in the butt. I mean, I... You know, I, I don't want to make fun of ADD, but oftentimes people say ADD is uh, absent dad disorder, and uh, and I know that there really is an ADD and an ADHD. So I'm not, you know, I'm not making fun of that at all. But I think I had the ADD, the absent dad disorder. I needed somebody, you know, a, a man to kick me in the butt. I terrorized my mother. You know, I don't know how she even made it. Well, she shipped me off to live with relatives twice: once in the fourth grade, once in the ninth grade. And you know, at the time, it was very hurtful. As an adult, I look back and go, you know, she was a single mom, and I was really a bad kid. I mean, I had the feds show up on my doorstep in the sixth grade. And you know, you've gotten to the real cops when they're not wearing uniforms anymore. And they're wearing suits and flashing badges. So I I was a, a pretty bad kid. And 
Um, so I went off to this youth group. The second thing that he had was he told me about God and he told me that I had a purpose and that I was created for a purpose and that uh, God had a plan for my life and that I just needed to go and find it. And so I graduated. I, I was in the bottom 10% of my class. Uh, I got into a college where the sole uh, criteria for getting in was that the check cleared. And uh, I got a degree in youth and family work. And I decided to become a youth minister out in northern New Jersey. That lasted three years until I realized I didn't like teenagers. So, um, <laughs> so then I moved back to Seattle area and I started this publishing company and I also started a church and I ended up starting three churches as a pastor out in the, the greater Seattle area. And um, yeah, so it's, it's been an interesting life. In 2002, I resigned my, my pastorate job and I started writing and speaking full time. I ended up working with a guy named John Maxwell and then oh, yeah. that led to working with Jim Rohn and that led to a TV show with Zig Ziglar and... Oh. And that's kind of how I ended up building my my speaking career. So when did the idea to be a motivational speaker kind of start resonating in your in your soul? Well, it's kind of funny. I, I was a pastor and I read a book and it said something about, you know, you can have anything you want because you are God. And my first thought was. Well, number one, if I'm God, we're all in trouble um, because I would not make a very good God. I'd probably be very, very selfish. Um, but then I thought, wait a minute, you know, I know lots of successful Christians and, and, you know, and people who have great lives and have, you know, built great businesses and great families. And, and, and as I read the Bible, I thought, you know, I really think the Bible is a book of success. Sure. Now it might, might not be a book of success as modern America defines success, mm -hmm. but I really believe that the book, that the book is a guidebook for us to know how to live life so that yeah. we experience the, the health and the joy and the, the life that God wants us to. I know that in my own life, when I have followed the scriptures, uh, life has been good. I don't mean perfect, and I don't mm -hmm. mean without trouble, but I also know that when I disobey the scriptures, it always ends up bad. So, uh, you know, so I, I decided, well, I wonder if I should start something. So I started a little publishing company, and uh, it was basically success principles via um, sort of a Christian worldview, like, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And so ended up, um, we licensed hundreds and hundreds of audio programs from people. And then we were selling about 50,000 to 75,000 boxes a month through Costco and Sam's Club. Oh, and that's how I ended up meeting, um, you know, John Maxwell, Zig Ziglar, Dennis Waitley, because we licensed their audio programs. Um, and so that's how I got into that. So I sort of had a dual track for a while. I was pastoring a church and starting other churches, mm -hmm. but I was also traveling and speaking. So I'd speak at church on Sunday morning. And then during the week, I'd speak at Microsoft, General Electric, Cisco Systems, Harvard Business School, places like that. And then 2002, I decided to go do them full time. Wow. Well, I think a lot of people kind of glamorize life of being a motivational speaker. I think for a lot of successful people, they, they feel that um, they have the gift to do that. What's really involved with, with all of that? And how did you establish yourself? Well, I mean, I grounded out from the time I was, you know, 1988, I graduated college and I started speaking at high schools and colleges mm -hmm. and summer camps. And there's really nothing glamorous about that. Yeah. You know, when were when you, you got sharing kind of your brokenness story and then finding God? Was that was that really kind of where you started? Yeah, that was the point with the, especially with the kids and the yeah. high schoolers and the junior hires was, you know, my whole goal was to reach at risk kids. There you go. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of a funny thing, though. God took me in a weird direction six weeks before the end of college. 
I had no idea where I was going to go. I hadn't even looked for a job. Well, my junior year of college, I went to a Bible college. So I did two years, then I did a junior year away, then I did a senior year back because they didn't offer math and science and all that. So I had to go to a, a regular you know, college in order to get that so I could get my bachelor's degree as an accredited university. They you know, required that. So six weeks before I graduate, this girl from, that I had met uh, in Minnesota where I went to college out there my junior year, she called me up and she said, I just talked to my pastor of our church and they're looking for a youth pastor. Can I give him your name? I said, yeah, sure. So she called him up because he used to be her youth pastor. Now he was the senior pastor. And long story short, they hired me. So I moved to a little tiny town called Mendham, New Jersey. Mendham is one of the most affluent cities, uh, towns in America. Whitney Houston lived there at the time. Um, Malcolm Forbes lived in the town just south of us, Bernardsville. Mike Tyson lived just south of us. Very, very wealthy executives and things like that. So here I was getting my degree so I could work with at-risk kids. And I end up in one of the wealthiest communities in America with literally kids who made more money than me uh, from their trust funds and, and things like that. So um, I was taken under the wing by some really great Christian business people whose children were in my youth group, but I ended up spending a lot of time with them. And one of my first mentors was a guy who ended up as the CEO of Mars Candies. At the time, he was senior vice president, which is why he was in New Jersey. They have an operation in Hackettstown. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he had to move down to Virginia. But just some great people who invested in my life and, and taught me about life and taught me about God and taught me about business. And so it was kind of a funny thing. What I had thought I was going to go do ended up being you know, shifted in, in God's plans. I can't remember the proverb, but it says something like, uh, you know, we, we plan our ways, but he's the one that guides our steps or something like that. And, and, um, and I found that to be true in, in my own life. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Well, that's, that's such an interesting journey. So Chris, in your, in your signature talk, you contend that everyone essentially wants the same thing. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? <clears throat> yeah. So I ask a question, why is it that some people succeed and other people don't? Because everybody really wants the same thing. So in my speeches, I'll, I'll say, you know, let's do, I'm going to prove it to you. We all want the same thing. How many of you would like to have a million dollars in your bank account? Raise your hand. Everybody's hand goes Everybody. How many of you would like to find love and spend your life with someone that you love and respect, honor and enjoy? Everybody's hands rolls up. How many of you would like to live a long, healthy life full of energy and vigor? Everybody's hand goes up. How many of you would like your children to grow up and be productive members of society? Everybody's hand goes up. So see, we all want the same thing. We want sure. financial independence. We want love. We want friendship. We want our children to do better than we did. And so the question is, is if we all want the same thing and we live in a free country where you can do what you want, right. why is it that only some do and most don't? And, um, and I think that that's, you know, really the point of, of that intro to that speech is, is it asks that question. We can all, there are some places now where you can never go do what you want. There are, uh, you know, there are places where there are caste systems and it doesn't matter how ambitious you are, how talented you are, how skilled you are, how gregarious you are, you will always be known in this caste and you will never operate up here. And so, um, you know, I love the idea that in, you know, we're in America, so I'll speak about America, where you can choose what you want to do and you can go and do it. And it reminds me of an old quote. I think I'll get it right. Thomas Jefferson said, there's a natural aristocracy among men. Um, uh, and it is the combination of virtue and talent. And it's what's interesting is, is 
from that context, there used to be a natural aristocracy of men in the old world, which was whoever was born into the right family or married into the right family. The problem is you can't marry into the right family unless you're born into the right family. Mm -hmm. So everybody down here is stuck. The great thing about um, uh, judging people's, you know, success on their virtue and their character is it allows anybody to do anything they want to do. So I've made it my life's work to try and figure out why is it that some people succeed and other people don't? Mm -hmm. And that's the premise of it. Mm. That's so interesting. And the, um, the times that we find ourselves living in, you know, I really wonder if some people truly believe that, you know, that the, the American dream is attainable to everybody. What would you say to those who may be doubting that? Well, I totally believe it's true. Um, I see it happening all the time. Um, people do. Now, is it harder for some people than other people? Absolutely. If you're born into a family where your, your mom and your grandpa and your great grandmother all went to Harvard, yeah, you're probably going to get into Harvard. And you, they've probably built up some money and you probably have a head start. But there's just way too many people who started out poor, who built good, big, big, big businesses, combined with too many people who went to Harvard and never did anything with their life. Exactly. For me to believe that those are, are, you know, set in stone principles. And so I think our problem is, is when we're looking at groups rather than individuals. Mm -hmm. So you might say, yeah, it's harder for this group. Like one of the things they say is, is, is um, upward mobility, right? If you're born in the bottom 25%, you have a, a poverty, you know, whatever, um, then you have a less of a chance to get higher. And I agree, that's true. And we ought to make it easier for people. I think things like what we're doing now with opportunity zones, where people can get tax breaks when they're able to start a business in a poorer area, those are fantastic things that, that we can do to help people, right? But it doesn't require it. So we look at groups rather than individuals. So we can say, oh, it's really difficult for this group for whatever reason. And then it's sort of depressing. But if you, if you look at the individual and say, any individual from that group could actually break out of it. it, might be harder, but as an individual, you can choose your own destiny. As a group, it's a little harder to think that way, right? So to yeah. me, we have to stop looking at and talking about groups yes. of people yeah. and start talking about individuals and, and the freedoms uh, and the opportunities that individuals have. Right. And I think that group think mentality is detrimental um, in holding people back. Yeah. And it, and usually, you know, you talk about identity politics or group think, or it usually focuses on the worst part of that group instead of the, the best part of that group. You know, there's great things about black people. There's great things about white people. There's great things about Asian people. There's great things about women. There's great things about men. You know, there, there's, there's great things about any group. And instead we tend to use it to, you know, to penalize groups in order to uplift our own group. Exactly. Well, and I, I love the fact, I mean, I get, I get the feeling that you're a scrappy person and, you know, you found a way to be scrappy and survive from, from a young, from a young um, age. And I think that's what's, you know, you got, you got to be scrappy and you have to be resourceful in order to make it. And those people that may have had that Harvard education, I mean, there's no guarantee, you know, People that, that equate money with success, you know, get out of town. That's just the two just, they, they, don't, they don't equal out. Well, it's the default, right? If I say to somebody, if, I, if somebody were to walk in here and say, oh, I know this really successful guy, I want you to meet him. And he, and he said, oh, okay, I'd like to meet him. I said, now describe to me what you think I mean by that. He'd say, 
well, he's probably got a big business, probably makes a lot of money, got a nice home, you know, got a nice wife and kids, vacation. He would describe everything material right. and financial. So that's our default. But then if I were to say, so do you think money is the only way to describe success? Well, once you confront people with that, then they sort of back up and they go, oh, no, 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 I don't think that. But it is our default. But we do know deep down that it's all about relationships and love and health. And because, you know, if I said, look, uh, is a guy who has $20 million, but he's been married six times and none of his kids will speak to him. Is he successful? I think most people would say, yeah, yeah. probably not. Yeah. But if you just focus on the fact he has $20 million, then they'd say, oh, he's wildly successful. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm interested about the people that sit in the audience of a Chris Widener talk. Is there, is there kind of a universal theme that people are looking for when they when they are there to hear you speak? I think people want to be inspired. Mm -hmm. I think people want to feel better when they leave. Yeah. And, um, and I think they want to learn something that is immediately applicable. I don't do pie in the sky. Hey, if you do this for 12 years, it might work out for you. In fact, I usually point at the back door and I said, what I'm going to talk about, you can apply the minute you walk out these doors, you can begin to start working on these things. And, um, and so I think that there are people who want inspiration um, they want to feel good. They want to know that there's hope. You know, uh, I'll tell you, I, I did a research project a long time ago and I, I found out there was a couple of linguistics professors and they had done a study of politicians. And they found out that in every single election except one, they had uh, taken the stump speeches and they codified them, some words being positive, some words being negative. They put them into a computer analysis and they found that in every election except one, um, the most positive person won. <laughs> And I thought, well, that makes sense because people want to go somewhere better. They want, they will follow someone who promises something better. And, um, and so I think that that is a, it's part of human nature is that we're attracted to those who can inspire us to be more, do more, have more, give more, um, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, and look at how we've gone off the rails with that concept and political advertising. I mean, I'm in Georgia and we are, we've oh. been subjected to two more months of political ads. And it's just, it is hate and negativity. And, you know, it makes you want to not vote for anybody. Yeah. Well, you know, here, here's an interesting thing. I don't know if it, in doing any research about me, you know that I've had a political background. Uh, my best friend ran for governor in 2004. I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2010 uh, up in the state of Washington. And so I know a ton of political operatives. And I always tried to be positive. Yeah. Um, I always tried to be real um, honest. In fact, the opening line of my speeches, when I would show up at my, at my uh, you know, speeches, when I was running for office, mm -hmm. my opening line was, the easiest thing for me to do tonight would be to throw you red meat. But I refused to do it because it's too serious and we needed to think about these. I could have just gone up there and said, don't you hate the other side? And they go, yeah. You know, like you could do that. But my political operative friends, they always say, they say, you know, everybody says, they, you know, I can't stand getting down in the mud and getting dirty. But do you know why we do it? And I'm like, why? And they go, because it works. Yeah. And it reminded me of something that Tony Robbins has taught for a long time. And that is that people are more attuned to avoid pain than they are to pursue pleasure. So if you say, if you say, um, do this and you won't get hit over the head with a hammer. 
that's going to be a lot more powerful to somebody than do this and, and, you know, you'll, you'll feel warmer or, you know, something like that. They're much more attuned to avoiding pain. So this is why negative advertising works at a deep, it's, it's the, um, uh, what is it? Fear or flight or what is it? Mm, Fight or flight. It's that fear factor, right? At a really core base level. And it, and it's, in a way it's really sick, but in a way it's actually true. So it's unfortunate. It's part of our brokenness as human beings. You know, that's why they say, if you elect him, he's going to kill your grandmother. And you're like, well, I can't vote for him. He's going to kill my grandmother. (laughs) So they run off and they, you know, vote for the other guys. Yeah, it's not good. I'm just ready for it to be over. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know that it's ever going to be over. It seems to be worse now than ever before. I know. Okay, Chris. So talk to me about successful people choosing to be successful and how, how do you get, how do you get it? You know, how do you cultivate that mindset? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I spent seven years as a, as a voluntary chaplain for a police department where I lived up in Issaquah, Washington. And there was 25 police officers or something like that. The big thing in our town was it was the international headquarters for Costco in Issaquah. And so I spent a lot of time in a cop car and uh, thousands of hours. And I remember one night, I can still remember where we were on the street and we were parked and there was a bum laying on a bench. We didn't see a lot of, you know, it was an upscale town and they didn't really allow a lot of that, you know, loitering and things like homelessness and, and, um, and I remember looking at this guy and I said to the cop I was with, I said, how old do you think he is? And he said, I don't know, 40. And I said, you know, he was born a happy, loved baby. And somebody wrapped him in a blanket and somebody gave him food and gave him shelter and cared for him and loved him. How do you go from that to sleeping on a park bench? And most of the time, whether it's going from that to sleeping on a park bench or going from not having much to being a very successful business person, it all is based on the choices we make. And I think the interesting thing, I talk a lot about the power of choice, is is people don't want to accept responsibility for where they are because then they have to be responsible. And, and a lot of people are not where they want to be. So, so they blame it on something else. They blame it on their parents. So they blame it on their boss. So they blame it on their spouse. So they blame it on the economy. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And what I teach people is, no, it's your fault. And you are exactly where you've chosen to be. Own it. But once you get there, yeah. once, you can, once you can own it and accept all the weight of that responsibility, it's actually the moment of empowerment. Liberating. Because if it's true that you are right now where you are because of the choices you made, then it is also true that 10 years from now, you will be wherever your choices lead you to then. So you just start making different choices. If, If you're broke because you spend all your money on Louis Vuitton bags and eating out fancy dinners, get rid of the bags, quit eating out that much and start saving that money. And 10 years from now, you'll have 50 grand in the bank, right? You know, so it's just choices, but people, they don't understand or they don't want to deal with the responsibility of their own choices is is my opinion. Yeah. They overcomplicate it. Uh, The Jim Collins book, good to great. I just, uh, probably the one concept in there that resonated with me most was, you know, looking in the mirror and, you know, that's what great leaders do. They, they look at themselves first instead of pointing the finger out that way. And I, th- I think there's, there's such power in, in owning that. It's absolute power because now you're not a victim anymore. Most people live, that lead their lives, I always use the analogy, it's kind of like a, uh, uh, a styrofoam cup in an empty Walmart parking lot 
in the middle of a windstorm, right? They go this way and then the wind shifts, and then, you know, they're just back and forth, mm-hmm. and they're just moving around. There's no intention to it. There's no direction. Right. To it. Uh, they just live, you know, I'll, I'll get a raise. I'll make more money when my boss decides that I can, yeah. you know, I'll live wherever my boss tells me I can live or, you know, it's always somebody else's fault, always somebody else empowered. And we need to take back our power and understand that we have choices. Yes. Yes. What kind of advice do you have for somebody who may be sitting there listening to our conversation, who's just really gotten off track with their life? How, do, I mean, how do you get, how do you begin to own it and to write that ship and to create a new future? Yeah, sure. You know what? I, I would just say to those folks, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It, wherever you are right now is totally fine. It might not be where you wanted to be when you were graduating from high school and college and, and you know, and you went out into the world and you thought everything was going to be great. And now it's, it's not. Maybe you've gone through some hardships or you've lost some money or you've gone through a divorce or an illness. Where, wherever you are is fine. Yes. What isn't fine is staying there. Wherever you are is completely fine. Staying there is not fine. But the good news is, is that you can say, where do I want to go? And wherever you choose to go, you can establish a plan and a strategy from getting there. For getting there. If you're 100 pounds overweight, it's okay. Just lose it. Establish a plan for, you know, go to your doctor. Sit down with your doctor. Hire a nutritionist. Whatever you need to do. Um, and you might say, well, I don't have money to hire a nutritionist. The internet. You can find the internet. There's plenty of nutrition plans for free, right? And and if you're 100 pounds overweight, you can pick any nutrition plan that's branded as a nutrition plan and it's probably going to help, right? Again, got to go see your doctor. I'm not giving medical advice here. But um, if you you need to save money, there's plans. If you, you know, whatever, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, you want to have a better marriage. Maybe your marriage sucks right now. You're 10 years in and and you don't even want to be in the same room as your spouse, but you're committed to marriage and you know that you used to love him. buy some books. You know, uh, my wife and I have read a book twice now together, um, gone back through it again. It's called Cherish. It's fantastic. Best marriage book I've ever read. Mm. Teaches you how to cherish your spouse. And the premise is, is, you know, when we do our vows, it's uh, I promise to love and to cherish. Well, everybody talks about love, but what does it mean to cherish, Mm. to hold in high esteem, to honor, to respect, and, you know, those kinds of things. What would happen if you said, okay, my marriage sucks. I don't like it, but here's where I am but I'm going to make it better. Yes. And now you pick up a book and you start learning and you start growing and you start serving your spouse and, you know, and, and you, you might not ever get to a perfect marriage. Nobody ever will, but you'll probably make it better. And you'll, you'll begin down that journey of making your marriage better, losing your weight, making your money, whatever you want to do. It's okay. Just establish a plan and start working. it. Yeah. And I think so many people just get overwhelmed at the bigger picture of it all. You know, it's like, I have just, you know, where do I even begin? Well, and it's a belief pattern too. I I like Mm -hmm. to talk a lot about beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody's a hundred pounds overweight. Chances are they've been, I mean, there are some people that are normal and then they, they gain a lot of weight later on in life. But for the most part, most people have been heavy most of their life, right? They've been, a, I've always been a little overweight. I've never been svelte and thin and, you know, it's not my body type, right? And my weight has fluctuated. Um, but the, the reality is, is that they believe they're fat people. Or, or they believe they're poor. There are people that believe they're poor people. There are people that believe, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing talking about going to college? Nobody in our family's gone to college. We're not college people. You're going to become an electrician or, you know, whatever. And it sets this belief of who I am 
right? And so what I teach people to do is to change their belief systems incrementally. So let's say somebody should weigh 160 pounds and they weigh 260 pounds. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they might say, I just, I don't believe I'm a 160 pound person. And I say, okay, can you believe that you're a 240 pound person? Yeah, I used to weigh 240 pounds about three years ago. Great. Let's get you to 240. Then they get down to 240 and now they're, now they weigh 240 and they hold that for, you know, two months. And then you say, you know, are you a 260 person? No, no, I'm a 240 person. Well, could we get you to 220? And so they incrementally grow their belief system. You know, nobody starts out, they, you don't graduate college and start flying private jets. You, you don't believe you're going to fly private jets. You might hope to or wish to someday, but we all start, you know, driving our cars places. I drove my 74 Camaro all over America oh. getting places. I had and, a Camaro uh, too. I had a 74 Camaro with a three speed on the floor, manual transmission. And uh, eventually I had enough money that I could fly in the back of the bus on the airplane. Right. <laughs> but you have to walk past all those people in first class who are trying to pretend they don't see yeah, you. Yeah, they yeah. unwashed, walk <laughs> past them, you know, and you say to yourself someday, I'm going to sit up in the front. I could believe that I could sit up front someday. If I build my career and I make it up, I'm going to sit up front. Right. And that's the way we grow anything. I can, I can be a little bit less uh, weight. I can make a little bit more money and we grow our belief system. And, and, and a lot of it is about self-perception. Yeah, most definitely. So uh, what are your top three recommendations for leadership books? Boy, leadership books. Well, you know, I would say anything by John Maxwell is great. Um, he's obviously become one of the, the great leaders in our industry. Yeah. Um, funny story, I actually, when I was a minister, he was used to be a minister. A lot of people don't know that. And I took a college, a graduate level course from John in leadership before he was famous. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, he was sort of on the cusp of getting famous. Yeah. He was famous in the church world, but he wasn't famous in the world like he is today, you know, 35 million books later. Um, but I would say anything um, by that, by him, uh, by John. Um, one book that I really loved, and it, partly because I'm kind of a military fanatic, but I loved the book called The West Point Way of Leadership uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Donna Thorpe or Donna Thorne. I can't remember. Larry Donna Thorne, I think it is. Uh, West Point Way of Leadership. And one of the really interesting lessons I learned in that book was he tells about how they need to strip these people of everything they they have learned up until that point. And he says, if you think about it, who comes to West Point? It's the it's the head cheerleader. It's the student body president. It's the quarterback of the football team. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it's it's people who achievers. Yeah, they've already demonstrated brilliance academically. They've already demonstrated that they're involved in, you know, peripheral activities. Those They already think they're leaders. So the mm-hmm. first thing they do is they teach them to follow. Wow. And they teach them to follow explicitly. So when they're uh, accepted into West Point, they get a manual mailed to them. And they say, memorize this manual. And they will give them paragraphs that when somebody says to them, plebe, pass me the milk. They will have to say a paragraph word for word. If they miss it, they're in trouble. You're not kicked out, but they're in trouble for it. And the whole idea is to strip these people down away from what they thought leadership was to what true leadership is. And the ability to follow is inherent in ability to be a great leader. And I loved that lesson about how, you know, we need to relearn leadership, the proper leadership, and not just like a lot of kids coming out of high school, going to West Point, it's more popularity leadership or charisma or those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I thought that was a great book. Um, 
I'm trying to think. One of my books, it's not necessarily a leadership book, but it, it, it is a book that I uh, recommend a lot. It, it's a book that's similar, not similar, but I, I mentioned it in most of my speeches. It's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Since most of my speeches are on my book, The Art of Influence, uh, which is sort of the people skills side, I always mention a book called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion by um, um, Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. And he actually happens to be a professor here at ASU, uh, Arizona State University. But um, uh, that's, it's a great leadership book in that uh, leaders are influencers, right? And, and we come to understand the sort of scientific model behind what it is that allows people to be influenced. And, and it's, it's an amazing book. I would say Influence of Psychology of Persuasion is one of the 10 business books every person should read. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think cultivating a mindset of being a leader is something that can be taught. You know, at some point, somebody signaled you out and said, Chris, you're a leader. But a lot of people have never had those words kind of breathed into them. You can be a leader. And I think it's, you know, so much is at our disposal to try to, to, to begin to cultivate those leadership skills. And it's never too late. Well, I had, I had, I mentioned I went to this church in New Jersey and there were a few people in that church, older men, uh, gentlemen who were men of faith, but they were also wildly mm -hmm. successful and their attention to me and their investment to me took this kid who had grown up this drug addicted, gambling, terrorizing kid. I became a Christian the summer before my senior year and five years later, I'm a youth pastor in one of the wealthiest towns in, in, in all of America, there was a guy named Don Southwell. Don was the number two guy at Prudential. His office at the top of the Prudential building, which I visited, was bigger than my house that I live in now. It was, it was, there were two people, I think, in the top floor of the Prudential building, and, and one was you know one or the other, right? And uh, he invested a lot in me and, and taught me to believe in myself. And, and, and the fact that he believed in me made me feel like, you know, like I was able to, to be something. And then the other was the gentleman I mentioned earlier, a guy named Mike Murphy. And Mike at the time was senior vice president of Mars Candies. He left there and he became the president of Calcan out in Los Angeles. Um, and then uh, from Calcan, which is wholly owned by the Mars family, uh, he moved and became the president and CEO of, of Mars Candies in McLean, Virginia. And when I left my church in New Jersey to go start a church, to stop being a youth minister, start being a senior pastor, Mike started sending me checks. I never, I never asked him for any money. I didn't ask anybody for money. I just left. And I started getting a check. And I called him up after about the third one. And I said, hey, I really appreciate this. You know, why are you doing this? And this was, I, this, I was 25 years old. So it was 30, 29 years ago, 29 years ago. I still remember what he said as though he said it to me yesterday. He said, it's because I believe in you. Mm. And I think those words spoken by someone who has been successful, and it's why I try to do it to people now, now that I've gotten some reputation for having mm -hmm. some success and, and some, you know, um, influence and those kinds of things. I love to tell people that I believe in you. I, I can really see you doing well at this because I, I notice how powerful those people were in my life. Um, and, you know, the old proverb, the tongue has the power of life and death. Mm -hmm. And when we speak to other people, we are speaking either life or death. Yeah. 
And, uh, and every word is, you know, my wife and I, we talk about that a lot, right? And as we were getting engaged and, and we talked a lot about how spouses talk to one another and, uh, and our commitment to, you know, to only speak positively in life building, even if we're really mad at each other, <laughs> right? To really, That's you know, and one of the things we always talk about is, is the way you speak to your spouse is a complete and total choice. And I'll give you an example. Have you ever been just duking it out with your spouse, not physically, but just no way. And you're wrong. And I can't believe you treat me this way. And then all of a sudden you hear this ding dong and you run over there and go, Hey, Joe, (laughs) come on in. Right. Literally 15 seconds later, earlier, you were yelling at your spouse. Now you've chosen to treat the person at the door. Wonderfully. What if we exhibited that, uh, in fact, my wife and I have actually said we, what we ought to do is we ought to invent a little doorbell that somebody can ding dong in the middle of a fight between a spouse, right? Yeah. As a reminder of, okay, we're control. We control. If somebody were to ring the doorbell, we'd speak nicely to them. Why don't we back it up and speak nicely to each other? Because yeah. it's a choice. It is a choice. It is a choice. And I love the fact that you emphasize giving back in your talks and just the importance of that and just challenging people. Because I think a lot of times people get, you know, successful business people that they get busy and they're like, I don't have time for that. But uh, just talk a little bit about the importance of giving back, Chris. Yeah, I think it's important for us to do it to whatever degree we can. You know, and in the Bible, there's the story of the widow's might. Remember, they were sitting there and they were kind of watching people walk past the offering box and the little old lady walks by and she drops in a mite, which is, you know, basically a half a penny or a dime or something like that. And Jesus said, that woman gave more than anybody because it's not necessarily, you know, we see these guys, they get on TV and, you know, it's like Susie Schmo and her husband, Bob, just donated $35 million to the XYZ hospital and they get all the credit. (laughs) But, but what's interesting is, is that, you know, Bob and Susie Schmo may give $35 million, but they also raised an additional $100 million that year from people who gave it $500 at a time. So, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to help, not just financially, but uh, we, we work here locally with um, Jobs for Arizona Graduates, I think it's called JAGS, and we go down there into some of the poorer areas and we help them write their essays for college. And uh, it's always fun to talk to those, those kids. And last time we went down there, one of them said, you know, should I do this job? I can't remember what it was. Should I be a teacher? And I said, or, or how should I decide what I want to do for a, a living? And my question was, how important is money to you? Because that's, I think that's really the first and foremost thing you have to decide. Because I think there's a lot of people who say, well, money's not really that important to me. Then they choose a career they think is going to be fulfilling, but they can't pay a mortgage. And now they're mad. And they realize that money's a lot more important to them than they thought it was. So I always try to encourage people to, to think about, you know, what do you want your standard of living to be? Not that that's going to totally determine what it is that you do for a living, but if money's really important to you and you want to drive a new car every two years, there's a certain profession you should probably not do because you're going to just put yourself in a frustrating situation for the rest of your life. And that's, you know, all part of my coaching program. I work with people, help people try and improve their life and get better and, and, um, it's, it's fun. It's fun to help people. Yeah, most definitely. And I, I know for me, as, as I've matured in my career, you prioritize things differently. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm working with nonprofits now on marketing and events and um, definitely making less money than corporate sector, but it's, yeah. it's cup filling. So 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, you know, I've, I've always lived my life the way I've wanted to live it each and every day I wake up, I do what I want to do. And there's some benefits, there's some pros and there's some cons to it. Um, you know, I have a friend who just sold his company for $800 million. And I remember about five years ago, he said to me, man, I wish I had your life. And I said, man, I wish I had your money. <laughs> You know, so I'm looking over the fence at him going, wouldn't it be great to have $800 million? And, you know, every weekend on Instagram, he's in a different country at a different beach. And he's looking over at me going, man, I wish I didn't have to haul my cookies off to this corporate job every day for, you know, from six in the morning till eight at night, every night, six days a week. And, you know, everybody has to choose the kind of life they want to mm-hmm. live. And, and frankly, it's okay. Whatever you choose is great. That's your life. You yeah. get to do with it what you want with it. Yeah. And... If you're not at a place where where you were hoping to be, like you said, it's it's okay. It's never too too late to adjust those gears. And I always use Colonel Sanders as a great example. A lot of people don't know this. Colonel Sanders didn't start Kentucky Fried Chicken till he was 67 years old. He was already retired and bored out of his mind. And some Mm -hmm. friends said, "You make really good chicken. You should do that chicken thing." He was 67 years old when he started Kentucky Fried Chicken. And had all, I think he worked at a service station. If I remember correctly, he either owned or he worked at a service station most of his life. And he sold chicken out of the service station. Mm. And, uh, and somebody said, you know, you ought to go into the chicken business. And here we are, you know, all these years later. So if you're 67, you got a great chicken recipe. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Chris, this has been an amazing conversation. And I know people are going to be inspired by your words of wisdom and leadership. And how can people get in touch with you if if they want to know more? Yeah, easy. Go to chriswidener.com or you can find me at Chris Widener Speaker. I've got a new book coming out January 5th called Lasting Impact. How to create a life and business that lives beyond you. Um, you can find me, uh, uh, you can send me an email, chris at chriswidener.com. You can uh, start a fire and send smoke signals, like almost any way possible you can get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, I hope you'll come on and we'll, we'll talk about that new book once it's, once it's released. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. So I know we are still going through some tough times. That is reality. And unfortunately, it may take us some more time and return to stable ground especially for those of us living in the U.S. As a friendly reminder, we are still one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. That is who we are and what we should be about as a people and a nation. I encourage you to create good, safe boundaries around your life to help avoid the toxicity that reigns supreme on mainstream and social media. If you feel that angst in your soul, you know it's time to turn it off and instead do something productive. We will get through this, friends. Stay hopeful and try to stay positive. Keep listening to the Relevate Podcast. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.